a portion of the after, you know, after expenses, the race fees and everything should go back to fund the people who are working the trails. And so, you know, last year, the Minnesota mountain bike series gave back almost $52,000 to the 10 clubs who host our races, right? Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 74 features Gary Showquist. Gary is a super advocate for mountain biking. He was inducted into the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame in 2012 and has played a vital role in building the mountain bike community in the state of Minnesota over the past couple decades. Gary was hired by Quality Bicycle Products with the sole agenda of being an advocate for bikes, which gave him the freedom to do his thing. Gary was very creative in terms of getting the right people to the table to sell the value that mountain biking brings to communities. The ripple effects of this can now be seen nationwide as people are taking notice to what's happening in Minnesota. A great example of this is Freehub Magazine's soon-to-be-released movie named Bike Town, which features Redhead Bike Park in Chisholm, Minnesota. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and sells the cycles, a QBP product. Smith's also sells a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. Additional support for Trail Effect comes from Giants Ridge Bike Park and Ride the Range in Northern Minnesota. Check out both Volumes 1 and 2 of the Range Report on the Trail Effect Podcast for the latest information of all things Ride the Range. The Trail Effect Patreon account is live again also, so if you find value in the content found on Trail Effect, you now have a way to donate for that value. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with Gary Showquest. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Gary Showquist. And for those from Minnesota, Gary will be a familiar name. But for those that aren't familiar with what's happening or what has been happening for a couple decades now in Minnesota... Gary's going to drop a lot of knowledge here on, on mountain bike advocacy because Gary has been working behind the scenes well, and in front of the scenes in multiple different venues and areas in mountain biking in Minnesota for advocacy. And so for those that know that Minnesota has a lot going on, it didn't happen overnight. And Gary's going to let us know how the roles he's played and how a lot of the access for mountain biking has happened in Minnesota. How's it going today, Gary? Good. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, that's well. I don't know how we can talk about trails and communities and not have you on, because you have you've been at, in this game for a long time and you have a lot of knowledge to share. And I'm just super grateful that we're able to coordinate this and get it worked out. Sure. Let's talk about how you came to find the mountain bike and where that role that early on, how that you know how you really came to enjoy this two wheeled human powered machine. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I was not a a deep cyclist, you know, somebody who was a lifelong rider. I didn't really, my very first ride on a mountain bike was 1986 in Moab. My wife and I just literally 
you know, dropped a finger at the back of the outside magazine to find an adventure. And it was a three-day mountain bike trip uh, and a three-day whitewater rafting trip uh, at Moab. And so went and did that. Uh, and in those days, I was racing motorcycles. Uh, that was my passion. That was my, you know, big interest. And I remember the mountain bike thing was literally a pain in the ass. I mean, it, my butt really hurt because I, you're just not used to, you know, and think of a, the mountain bikes in those days, 86, right? So no suspension, no clipping, nothing, just, you know, 30 pound tanks that you're trying to ride. And so uh, nothing really happened until 1990, which is when I had, uh, which probably the worst accident that I had racing the motorcycles. And the doctors at uh, St. Joseph's in, in Brainerd said, you got to find something else to do because by now you've had four diagnosed concussions and you need another activity. Uh, and I found mountain biking uh, and uh, it, it clicked with me right away. I, I liked the, the fact that I could ride right from, I was living over in Egan and there was a trail, you just short right away. And so I didn't have to load a motorcycle onto a trailer to go anywhere. I could just ride out of my garage. I could be in the woods in 15 or 20 minutes. It worked for the fitness gene because the more you rode, the fitter you got. I liked being in the woods and, and being able to just get away and, and sort of appreciate the woods. And at the time, there were no mountain bike trails. We were riding on hiking trails. And uh, it just fit in so many ways. I uh, went out and bought a second bike. Uh, for my wife as a Valentine's Day present. And then we started riding and immediately got into racing. And it was really in, in uh, 1990 is when it dawned to me that access was going to become an issue because I tell people I, I got into mountain bike advocacy to fix some of the stuff I screwed up with dirt bikes in the 70s, right? In, in this, literally in the same areas where the mountain bike trails were going to come up, Murphy Hanrahan and Lebanon and Terrace Oaks, those, those early places. And so, you know, I think it's also important by the time I got into advocacy, I was already almost 40 years old and I had had quite a bit of life experience, had been an English teacher, went and got my master's degree in education, you know, intended to, you know, teach at the college level, no jobs. I ended up doing 14 years of publications work for big computer companies doing defense industry work. And so by the time I, I sort of got into advocating for mountain bikes, I had had a fair amount of experience and had been uh, active in the motorcycle road racing organization as a board member and publishing newsletters, that kind of thing. And so when I got into mountain biking, it just seemed like this is like just the next logical thing. It's like this intersection of education and fitness having an activity that you can do that you know makes you healthy you get to appreciate the nature you, it's also a passion that you can put in and so i i just got sort of launched into that in uh, 1990 yeah and it seems like you know i grew up across the border in wisconsin but i always looked at minnesota as being kind of ahead of the curve in terms of both motocross and bmx there is more bmx tracks in minnesota there is more motor motocross tracks in minnesota in fact i remember in the early 90s going to millville to race mountain bikes oh yeah yeah i remember that race too um yeah that was <laughs> there was a, uh i remember quite a downhill that you didn't you didn't really ride it you sort of fell down the the <laughs> yeah 
yeah, I'm not sure why that why that evolved that way, but I'm I'm sure glad it did. Um, and uh, you know, on the on the mountain bike side, it just meant there were places that we were going to be able to go uh, a fairly short distance away to be able to ride. And um, and I really appreciated that. It's not like we had to go six or seven hours to find a place to ride. And so, uh, yeah, those those early days were uh, were pretty interesting. Yeah, let's talk about becoming an advocate and getting in front of the Minnesota DNR and kind of the role you played and what that meant to kind of help paint the picture of mountain biking being an ally for outdoor recreation and getting outside with, you know, and and how it relates to the state DNR in Minnesota. Yeah, I was, um, so, uh, in the early nineties, I became an Imba state rep at the time they had just a representative for the whole state. And, um, I had also been doing some contract work for the DNR and helped them with a big bicycle conference. And I got to know uh, some of the senior management of DNR, like the DNR commissioner himself and and the senior leadership. And I knew that, you know, and as, as mountain biking would evolve, there would be, you could just see how it would lay out. There were going to be, trails in that cities own. There are going to be trails that counties own. There are going to be trails that ended up in DNR facilities. And that's exactly sort of what, what happened, how it rolled out. And because I had access to these senior members of DNR, I got sort of insider knowledge on what was going to happen. And of course, the most prominent one was when uh, Cuyuna evolved into a the state's first recreation area. I think it was announced in 1993 and because i had by then been sort of established as a voice for mountain biking and was actually publishing a a newsletter called off-road rider i got invited to go up uh to this public meeting about cuyuna in 1995 and so wrote about it i actually have the newsletter with the map and you know the, the directions that kind of thing published and so i think it was important that the the combination of being the Imba state rep meant that when I wanted to host a meeting, I would have land managers at city city level or county level or DNR level attend. And when Imba trail care came through in like 95 and 96, you know, we'd have 40 or 50 people in the room and, and the right kind of people. And I think that's a kind of an important um, step in the mountain biking evolution uh, for Minnesota is that there was this early focus on educating land managers. It wasn't focused on building a membership base. I mean, the the very first, the name before Mork for the organization was a North Central Mountain Bike Resource Group. So that gives you a clue, right? We want to provide resources to land managers so they understand what mountain biking is and what mountain bikers want. And, um, that that really played out well with I think it was the Imba Trail Care crew came through and I think it was '96, and we were at over Lebanon and had like 40 land managers of different levels, and one of them, a guy named um, Steve Sullivan, was the mate was 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 a maintenance worker in the Dakota County uh, Park and Rec Department that, that runs Lebanon, and eventually he became the director of Dakota County Parks, and I remember on his very first day on his job, he called me and he said, what do mountain bikers want at Lebanon Hills? 
and and that launched into a planning process uh and that eventually led to developing the single track trail at lebanon which was really pivotal because it became kind of a model uh and other land managers uh, could come and ride it and and see it and in fact i used to take the dnr commissioner and his senior leadership on mountain bike rides at lebanon on that early or that first uh, real single track trail that that um, came out of the planning process so you know the combination of the education uh being having access to the right kind of people and then it just sort of uh evolved after that you get the right people who understand the concept and you provide the resources for them and then good things can happen so yeah did you re- encounter any I'm sure you got questions, but did you encounter much resistance at that point? I mean, mountain biking was still, I mean, I mean, some people still think it's new today and it's 2022, Yeah, but it was really new in, in the 1990s. Yeah. There was a fair amount of, um, I don't know, uh, for, for one thing, it, it, I, I tell people I'm a prisoner of logic. It's just how I think. Right. And so it was really illogical to me that, that, uh, like at a place like Terrace Oaks, you could hike, but you couldn't mountain bike. And, and I, and I remember thinking, well, if we just could get the right kind of trail, then, you know, cause an early board member uh, for Imbo, the name guy by the name of Jim Hasenauer, and he had a great quote in the, in the context of working with hikers who don't think mountain biking should be allowed. And he said, you know, you're not closer to God just because you're walking in the woods than riding, right? It's like mountain bikers appreciate nature and our ability to get in the woods just as much as you do. And it has taken a long time, but I think, you know, that's one of the reasons mountain biking now is, is basically like a mainstream recreational activity here in Minnesota is people have become comfortable with the idea that we do, we really do care about the resource and you know, that the stewardship is built in, you know, if you, if you ride a road bike anywhere in America on any public street, you have a, there's a state statute that gives you the right to be there, but nobody has the right there's no guaranteed right to ride a mountain bike, right? Mountain bike trails are fought for or negotiated for and then have to be maintained. And so that, that stewardship ethic part has always, I think, been really, really critical uh, for mountain biking. You asked me earlier if there was a, a particular failure, and I'll tell you, in, I think it was 95, I was trying to mobilize mountain bikers in the, in the Minneapolis area. And at the time, there was a race uh, at Buck Hill called Eric Spring Cup. And, uh, and I thought, okay, so this is a perfect opportunity. I'm going to host a meeting after the race, all these mountain bikers are going to show up and it just seems, you know, they, now they can just stick around a little bit and we can try and mobilize them to work on trails. Well, 450 people did the race and two people showed up at the meeting. <laughs> and so that was a really early lesson for me on how, you know, just because I saw things a certain way, so many others didn't. And unfortunately, that that continues today. You know, there are just a fraction of people who belong to Mork or Cogs or any of the mountain bike organizations who actually do the riding. But that's just that's just part of the struggle for mountain bike advocacy. I think you just hit on to- on a topic that I didn't have listed, but it's always been something that I've been baffled by, and that is. Here in the state of Wisconsin, as I mean, you've been around for a long time, yep. Wisconsin, from a racing perspective at one point, and they're still really going really strong, had literally the largest mountain bike race series in the country yeah. where they're getting 
you know, a thousand plus riders a weekend. Yeah. And it's always baffled me that how do we get a thousand plus people to show up to a mountain bike race, but almost none of them show up to advocacy to help either gain access or do trail work or whatever on the other end of mountain biking. Yeah. You know, and, and you just, you totally just hit the nail on the head with your Buck Hill story. Yeah. It's, it's always, um, it's always a struggle because I think, um, a lot of people who ride mountain bike, they're, they're so new to it that it's like, what do you mean? There's, this isn't something that we've, they almost take it for granted, right? Like we have these DNRs and these, you know, commissions and counties and cities and stuff. And, you know, they, they offer, they work on mountain bike trails and they build, you know, you know, ball and stick places for basketball courts and tennis courts and all that kind of, that stuff just sort of happens. You never think about getting involved to make it happen, but you know, it doesn't work for mountain biking that way. It's, it's, it's a different deal altogether. And I think going back to your, when you asked about Wisconsin, you know, I've been involved in helping run the, the Minnesota mountain bike series since like 2003 and wars on the Wisconsin side was, you know, uh, we actually used to have a border battle at River Falls for a couple of years, but I was always struck by the differences in the, the sort of the makeup of the racers in, in Wisconsin, most of the races, uh, take place either central or East, right? We got these big urban centers and a lot of the, there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of roadies who show up to ride the mountain bike races, right? In Minnesota, we we haven't had that same crossover nearly as much, and um, and I think the another another aspect is that, and again, this goes back to you know I have a mini MBA in nonprofit management, and I turned the Minnesota mountain or I I should say we turned the Minnesota mountain bike series into a nonprofit because we didn't want to focus on high end competition. I, I it just didn't seem to me like we should be paying USA cycling heavy license fees so that a select few could earn points to race nationally. Right. I always, I always wanted to focus on making, um, the statewide racing series family friendly and a welcoming place for people to come and to be able to hang out with like-minded people and, and sort of understand, you know, we're not going to promise you the ultimate race experience. We're going to do our best to give you, a place to have a good, safe race. We all have to go back to work on Monday. You know, there's no World Cup points here uh, or anything. Let's let's calm down and just have a good time and you know, come back a week later to race somewhere else, right, with, with a lot of the same people and have a chance to travel around the state. And then I think the other the other aspect from, from the, you know, the Minnesota Mumbai Series was we we wanted to launch the high school league in 2012. And so it made sense that we would use a portion of the race fees from the Mount Bike series to help launch the high school league in 2012 and then even shared equipment and stuff too. So, so I, you know, the, the way the racing has evolved, uh, is, a, is a little bit different and, uh, you know, Wisconsin was a little bit later to get their high school league up and running and it's not anywhere near as big as ours. Ours is the second biggest in the country. Um, and so that's a, a real testament, I think, to uh, that's that sort of focus. Let's let's make it a welcoming place where the focus is not so much on high end competition, um, 
because I just think there's many, many more people involved who would be involved in mountain biking, who are involved in mountain biking, who don't really care about points and traveling to national races and that kind of stuff. You, you can find that if you want, but I, I just never thought that that was something that was really important here in Minnesota. Yeah. And I, I do appreciate those comments because I, as a mountain bike racer, I would go to the border battle up in River Falls, Wisconsin, and I really appreciated racing at that venue. And I, you, you could tell there was just a difference. It, you know, was, I've been a racer of mountain bikes and other things my whole life, and I really appreciate the, comp, the competition aspect of it, but it wasn't quite so type A. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it's still type A because it's still a competition. Yeah. But it wasn't, maybe I should say it wasn't quite so cutthroat. Maybe yeah. that's a better way of putting it. Yeah. And I always appreciated that. And I really appreciated the fact that when wars, you know, decided to not go, and we've totally deviated off of comp stuff, yeah. I'll bring us back, I promise. Okay. When wars decided to not do the border battle, you know, Minnesota series continued to carry that yeah. on in, yeah. in Wisconsin. Yeah. But I think a, a, another, another aspect of that is the way the, the way we set up our series was that the money goes back to, after we pay expenses, the money goes back to the clubs who are taking care of the trails. Again, that just made sense to me. If we're going to race on this trail that has to be maintained, then a portion of the after, you know, after expenses, the race fees and everything should go back to fund the people who are working the trails. And so, you know, last year, the Minnesota Mountain Bike Series gave back almost $52,000 to the 10 clubs who host our races, right? And, you know, Wisconsin was just a different model, right? There was a promoter, somebody ran, you know, Don ran the whole thing and he collected all the money and, you know, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. That That's just a different model, but it's not, it's not how we decided to go in Minnesota. So. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get us back to the nineties. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about IMBA and working with IMBA early on. You'd, you'd mentioned uh, the IMBA trail care crew, which I'm assuming at that point must, must've been Jan and Mike Ryder. You know, because they yeah. were the they were one of the Ember Trail Care crews of the first Ember Trail Care crew back yeah. in that time frame, and yep. we've had Mike on this podcast. As Mike has been, you know, hugely involved still to this day with teaching people how to yeah. build and maintain trails. But let's talk about what Imba was like back in those days. And I even remember listening to a podcast uh, as I was doing research for this podcast today, where you had talked about going to Wyoming, yeah, and meeting with like ten other people who were advocates. Yeah. You know, the only 10 people or so in the nation at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, a yeah, that's the, um, oh boy, that's a whole separate thing. You know, the, um, it's not clear to a lot of people, but you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of a unique advocate because I have the mountain bike side, but then also the road bike side, you know, there's a, a fair amount of stuff that I was able to do thanks to QBP basically. But in those early days, um, it was just, great to have resources and imba was focused on on you know trying to legitimize mountain biking make it a mainstream activity and provide the resources that people needed and and the, the trail care crew was just a fabulous example of that you know when they would come through and they were really really good at meeting with land managers addressing their concerns and making this this new thing mountain biking sort of a a normal activity, right. That, that, that the, the, uh, land managers could feel safe about, feel comfortable about, right. It wasn't some wild thing that, that they were going to have to use 
lot of resources to fix or anything. And then as, as the evolution of trail building sort of evolved, I think, you know, it became even, even better when Imba had their regional directors. When those, when, when those guys came in, Hansi Johnson up in Duluth, you know, um, it's just another good example of, in those days anyways, Imba was able to provide the resources that we needed here on the ground. And that included not just working on trails, but uh, building club capacity which has always been an issue, you know, for mountain biking, we touched on this earlier, you know, how, how so few people actually sign up and pay money to help with advocacy efforts. And so I, I think the, the role of IMBA in the growth of mountain biking in Minnesota was, is just huge. And, um, and it, it, again, it's just very pivotal that they were able to, IMBA was able to provide the education, the resources, uh, to the land managers, um, and I think you've seen the the uh, effect of that now. That's that's one of the reasons why we've got such great mountain biking is, and I it it's also a combination of sort of unique, you know, we have for whatever reason, and I, and I I think about this in the work that I did back with the DNR, but but we have this legacy of separate trails, right? We don't mix trail use like a lot of other uh, states do, and and again for mountain biking very it's so much of the trail is directional. You know, I remember when we were working on, on Cuyuna, I couldn't get the DNR to get their heads around the idea that, that these trails should be one way. A majority of them should be one way. They weren't mountain bikers. They didn't see the danger of, you know, somebody hurtling down a hill and having to face with somebody coming up the hill. And, um, and finally we, I just had to let them go. And I thought, okay, so within a couple of years, you'll figure this out and then you'll understand the need for, for one way or directional trails. And I think also we, you know, we have pretty temperate weather, right? We have shade. Um, we have places you can jump into the water, right? And so, you know, Imba, Imba wasn't, isn't responsible for that. But I think when you lay out the resources that they provided, the kind of coverage they provided, and then these separate trails thing, the directional trails thing, the, temperate weathers, shade. I think that those are all reasons why mountain biking has grown in Minnesota. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to go deep on directional trails here in a little bit, because that is a topic that I've brought up in the podcast numerous times in something I think, you know, there's a lot of places that still haven't adopted that. I mean, for one reason or another, some people, oh, screw it. Let's just do it now. Let's go, let's go into directional trails now, but I still want to get we're going to get back to you getting hired by QBP. So oh, we're yeah. going to do that. We're going to meander and stuff like that. But I want to, you brought it up. So I want to, we'll just, we'll tackle it now. It's important. And we want to have this, I guess we do want to have it early on in the show. You know, I've, I've hit resistance with it in my own community. We used to have directional trails and now they're not directional. And every now and then you get one person or two people are be like, well, I really want to climb up that downhill. It's like, yeah, I, I get that. But I look at directional trails as being an advantage for the ways that you're probably going to lay out here, but also because if you're a user that you don't know, you know, you come to this trail system, wherever that trail system is, and you don't necessarily know a loop or what direction the trails ride the best, having that directional system sets you on that path where you don't actually need a guide. Right. But why don't you go deep into the whole directional stuff and, and why that you guys found that made a lot of sense because- we've gone backwards where I live on that. And yeah, I hit resistance on it. it. It's a little frustrating for me, but yeah, well, I, I think, um, you know, um, 
I'm an educator, right? And and that's that's been my role is is education. And as the evolution of trail building occurred here in Minnesota, it just seemed to make sense to me that directional trails would be easier to maintain. They provide less conflict with, you know, accidents or that kind of thing. In so many of our settings, different than out west, is we're riding really tight single track in heavy woods. And and so you don't have great sight lines to see very far in front of you in many cases. And I think that's a strength. That's it's one of the reasons our we have great great trails. But it just seems like this legacy of separate trails, you know, we don't mix with equestrians or dirt bikes or or others. Ninety nine percent of people on the mountain bike trails are mountain bikers. When you when you look at that from a sort of a conflict management perspective as well as a trail maintenance perspective, it just seems at least it always seemed to me that you know a directional trail is better. Now it means you have to you have to have a pretty wide canvas to work on because you've got to figure out how to get people back <laughs> to the trailhead, right? And um, like at, at Cayenne, unfortunately, they've been able to they've been able to do that, but I think. You know, it's a combination of things. You know, if you ride the front range uh, in Colorado, you know, you, you can see for ever. I mean, you, you know, there's, you don't have a kind of tight winding trails in deep forests that we have here. And so, I don't know, it just always, it just always made sense to me that, that, you know, I, I don't golf or anything, but, you know, you, you can't go to a golf course and just inadvertently hit the ball wherever you want, right? There's the there's this process. <laughs> there's a there's a cup, and the goal is to get that ball in a cup. And so this sort of free form, why can't we just ride wherever we want? Thing, I I just thought this is so misguided. It's you know, and you know that you have to you have to appreciate the work that goes in to build the trail and to maintain the trail. And if you're going to ride the wrong way on the trail. Uh, you're just going to damage all the work that's gone into that trail. Plus, you might either screw yourself up or somebody else in an accident. And so, do directional trail? You know, you you can't really have the mantra all directional trails, right? But I just think it makes sense from a management perspective and a safe safe riding perspective to do that when you can and when it when it makes sense and you have the room to to build a complete network. I, and I think maybe that's, that's part of it. I, I always thought of trails in a network sense, not just as individual trails, right? And I always liked our stacked loop system here where, you know, you got a beginner trail that bleeds into an intermediate that bleeds into, so, you, so whoever shows up can get what they want, right? It just really made sense to me. And, and the directional sort of, you know, fits in with that nicely, so. Yeah, it's it's funny that you brought up the golf analogy because I've actually said that myself. I'm like, could you imagine if you went to a golf course and people just started like going backwards at each other? <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's like you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna participate in a sport or an activity, you you know, it, it's not a free form thing, right? I mean, you 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 know, we were <laughs> we were we were bowling uh, in Vegas at Interbike one year early. Emma threw a. Um, a bash, uh, 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 you know, everybody was invited to come bowling and raise money. And, you know, after you've had a drink or two, you know, you, instead of bowling down the lane, 
you bowl sideways, right? And it's like that that quickly got just extinguished because that was a bad idea. But you know, you don't bowl sideways; you bowl down the lane. <laughs> That's how it works, just just like with golf. And so, I don't know. Maybe we're overplaying this, but it just seems to me that from a management perspective and a riding safe riding perspective, directional trails, um, when when you can use them and when they can fit, should be used. Yeah. And to expand on that just a little bit more before we totally kill the directional trail horse. Yeah. If it's a shared use trail, hikers then know what direction bikers are right. coming. Right. Yeah. It's one, one other pro. And then a, another thing is, and we've seen this really heavily since 2020 is you can manage and Aaron Houtula and I talked about this just last week. You can manage a lot more people exactly on your trail system exactly if everyone's going the same way even if they're going different speeds it's just like again you go to the golf course maybe a group of golfers is is yeah. golfing faster than, than another group and they group and they play through it's the same thing with bikes yeah not that's a really good point because um especially as Cuyuna has gotten so busy so many people there when you're on the trail it doesn't feel like it because largely because of the directional stuff right you might catch up to people but but it's, there are large gaps. So I, I, I think that's, that's a really important point. Um, it just allows so many more people to enjoy the facility, which is important to the land managers and the, the people that own the, open and run the trail. So. Yeah. And, and like Aaron said, he goes, the last thing you want to see as a user when you go into the woods is more people in the woods than you would have seen in town. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's get back to, you know, how you got, how you came on with QBP, because I think QBP had a lot of foresight with bringing an individual like you on to their staff. And I, I, I wish more people or more companies yeah. would have thought like that. And maybe they have, and I don't know about it. And just expand on, on your role with QBP, sure. the importance of that role and the freedom that QBP gave you to do what you needed yeah. and wanted to do. Well, first of all, um, it was several employees at QBP, and these are these are people that I worked with, Mike Peterson and Jim Holst, uh, can't remember somebody else, other people. But anyway, we we had done these Twin Cities Mountain Bike Expos in the mid '90s, and Imba had come and that kind of stuff. And so, I think the uh, an outgrowth of the work that I was doing for Imba to set up clubs and try and get trails. Um, resonated with some of the employees and they went to management and said, you know, we think we should create a position as a full-time advocate here. And to their credit, Steve Flagg and Mary Hendrickson, the owners of QBP, agreed. And, you know, right from the very beginning, uh, you know, you have to address the ROI, right? We're going to bring somebody on who doesn't do anything with parts, doesn't do anything with, you know, lifting boxes or works in the warehouse or does any of that. Um, all the work that this person is going to do is going to be basically outside the building. And is it, is it really going to turn up in terms of ROI for the company? Now, thankfully, QBP in these days was going through double digit growth, right? It, it just every year was 14, 15, 18% growth, whatever. And so when I started at QBP, you know, there were like, I think 90 employees and sales were in the $40 million range. And, you know, when I left, there was 850 employees and revenues in the, you know, north of 300,000 or 300 million a year, right? So a tremendously successful company in terms of, in terms of growth. 
But I also knew that um, my job could be cut very easily if sales slowed off dramatically. But thankfully, QBP, even on really slow years, had single-digit growth uh, at some point. So, so anyway, they, they literally offered me a clean piece of paper and said, design a job as a, a bicycle advocate. And, um, and so the, you know, the, the sort of the three prongs were to, um, help, help get the rest of the bike industry to understand the value of advocating for places to ride instead of fighting each other for market share. How about if we work together on a sort of a national level to utilize federal funding to build safe places to ride, um, you know, do do what we can to work with IMBA to make mountain biking more widespread. I think the second prong was to work retail work with retailers to help with projects in their communities. You know, you know, John Burke had a great uh, line back then because he talked about how Minneapolis and Atlanta were about the same size in terms of demographics, but Trek sold six times as many bikes in Minneapolis as they did in Atlanta, right? Because there were safe places to ride bikes, right? Both mountain bikes and, and road bikes. And so the third prong of the job description was just stay involved in signature projects, things that could be replicated or that were sort of models for how to do things. And, and those three parameters was, that was it. Um, and they said, you know, here's, here's a credit card and here's this little cubicle where you can work. And, uh, Imba gave me, uh, one of their trail care crew cars that first year, they had an extra one. And so I drove it back from Denver and, you know, put 30,000 miles on it in Minnesota, running around the state and in Wisconsin. And so it was really a unique thing for a bike industry company to go to that extent. And then on top of it, as long as I was doing good things, nobody was going to tell me what I could, could or couldn't do. And, and that, I, that can't be overestimated. I'm, when I always tell people, when nobody's paying attention, you can do a lot of cool stuff. You can make stuff happen, right? You're with a big, big company that's got great resources, that's got kind of a gold standard in terms of, you know, it was so great to go into a retailer's, you know, some shop and they're like, wow, you're from QBP. We love that company. That is just awesome. You'd hear that all the time, every, all the time. And on the, on the national side, I got fortunate because, again, because of the ability to travel, I was able to attend a, a, a meeting in, Washington DC and was uh, able to help launch Bikes Belong, which eventually became People for Bikes on the national side. And then QBP allowed me to work uh, part-time for Bikes Belong as well as my work with QBP. And so again, you can you can do a lot of stuff when when a big company just allows you to go to work. And you know, there were very, very few parameters on what I could or couldn't do. In those days, you could pay for congressional travel. And I became friends with Congressman Jim Overstar from the 8th District and realized I could use him to help sort of bring the industry into advocacy, into getting working together through Bikes Belong. And and so uh, we could pay for him to travel. Uh, you know, I'd fly him to D.C. or, or fly him from D.C. to you know, San Diego, a couple of different times. I had him in Vegas, walked him through the, you know, interbike. Uh, as long as we could get in a good hour or two hour road ride, he was willing to come. He'd just show up, uh, clip in and go, you know, and, and it was just, it was just amazing. And, and of course that 
that provided uh, me with additional resources because it all of a sudden it dawned to me, wait a second, I have this writing buddy who's a very prominent member of Congress who has access to federal funds. And that's, that's what happened with, uh, with Cuyuna. Let me come back to Cuyuna. I had been working with the DNR and trying to get them to, you know, put some money toward building a mountain bike trail at Cuyuna. And Bill Morrissey was the commissioner in those days or in, in the mid 2000s, early 2000s, I guess it was. And he said, there's, there's not going to be any money from the DNR. There's not going to be any money from the state legislature. It's just not going to happen. We're going to have this new state park called Vermilion State Park. All the resources are going to get sucked up there. So if you want to build a mountain bike trail uh, at Cuyuna, you're going to have to go find the money. And thankfully, it was Jen Dice actually at IMBA, back in IMBA in those days, who said, wait a second, you know Overstar. Why don't you ask Overstar if he can find some funding for that? It's in his district. And uh, that was one of those duh moments. And I thought, oh, yeah. So Tim Wagner, an early IMBA member or IMBA board member, I'm sorry, Mork board member, and the first guy to put up a trail building company in the state. He and I traveled out to D.C. and asked Overstar, can, can we get money to do this? To, and and uh, Overstar was able to get a called a high priority project request. Senior members of Congress can, can do that. And, um, and he provided the money to, to build the first 23 miles of trail at, uh, at Cuyuna. And so if you think back, if QBP limits my travel, if they limit the scope of what I'm doing, Maybe none of that happens, right? Overstar ended up getting me $25 million to put in a pilot project, one of four communities uh, in the country, to basically show people how to get out of cars and onto bikes, right? Again, it's like none of that would have happened if QPP wouldn't have allowed me to run around and do the things that, that I was doing. You know, the launching of the Minnesota high school cycling league is, is another really good example. I went to, went to Steve flag and that QVP and said, look, I think this would be a really good thing if we can do this. And so if I can, if I can work on this, well, I'll get it up and running and then somebody else will run it eventually. And so that's what happened. We launched the high school league in 2012. Um, and really I think that's uh, so critical because the combination of opening up Cuyuna and then a year later launching this high school league, has really dramatically impacted mount biking in Minnesota. And when you, when you look back at the sort of the earlier work with educating land managers and providing the resources that IMBA did, it was like a, a perfect storm of opportunity. And, and I think we're seeing the, the benefits of that now you know, in Minnesota. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I got, I got a friend of mine who actually was in a wedding with has directly been able to be benefited by the trails in Cuyuna and his son is, is a, was a really fast racer. And he, you know, I met, when I met him, his name is Sean Anderson. Uh, you might know Sean. Oh yeah. I'm Sean. Good friend. Yep. And his son, you know, Braden. Yeah. He's a good racer. He was a good racer. I don't think he's racing now, but it, it was funny when I met him, he was living in Brainerd and there, and he was in the process of building a cabin yeah. for his family near Cuyuna. And then a year later sells the house in Brainerd adds another thousand square feet to the cabin because he's got, you know, yeah. a handful of kids yeah. and just moves right to Cuyuna. Yeah. 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 And he, he was very prominent because he was the, I think he was the first coach of the first team in, in, up in Cuyuna on the high school league. And, um, yeah, it's just, um, I, I tell people a mountain biking in Minnesota can be measured sort of up to Cuyuna and then after Cuyuna, right? 
because Cayuna just changed everything. I mean, the Hansi and I knew that it was going to need to be just a, a killer trail. It had the, it, it had, we had the opportunity to, to make it that way, but it, it, it had to be built to the right standard. And, and here's Imba again, you know, providing resources. Hansi and I knew that the way the DNR works, the, a low bidder is going to get the job, right? And we didn't want some landscape architect who had never built a mountain bike trail to get the bid to build Cayuna, right? And so thankfully, you know, Hans and I were able to meet with, I, I knew who the federal highway administrator for the state of Minnesota was. And we met and discussed, can't, can't we put some kind of parameters on who can bid? And somebody has to have a demonstrated strength in mountain bike building trail network to bid. And, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, we, we ended up getting the excavation company, you know, the, the Swanson's, those sons were racing in the series, right? And then the company that, you know, trail builders, um, it just, it, it just, I tell people, Cayenne was a good karma project. Everything that had to happen, happened. And thankfully, a lot of help from a lot of people along the way. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just an amazing story. But again, if QBP doesn't give me the leash and the resources to do those things, you know, maybe, maybe none of this happens. I don't know. Yeah. And to your knowledge, was there anyone else in a role like yours for any other companies in the nation or even in the world? Um, there were, there were companies who, who, um, well, like Patrick Seidler at WTB is a good example, um, running a successful company and got heavily involved in advocacy work in, in, uh, you know, just North of the Golden Gate bridge in california yeah in california yep and and um figured prominently in and you know one early board member for bikes belong and really helped push both mountain biking and um and road biking but i don't know that i i, I never met another person who you know if, if there were people involved in advocacy it was part of what they did for marketing or part of what they did for like you know demo bike stuff I think that I was the only person really who was, that had the, the moniker of a full-time advocate who wasn't like in a, a management position or, you know, somebody who owned a company and then also got to dabble in advocacy or trail work or something. So, and, and, you know, one of Steve Flagg's goals when, when they brought me on was to maybe convince some other people to do that. And, um, thankfully the early people that set up uh, bikes belong, provided funds for advocacy to Bikes Belong and to IMBA and then eventually to the high school leagues. But I don't know that anybody has really had that same. I mean, from that, I started the QBP in 1998. I mean, that was pretty early in sort of the advocacy awareness phase uh, of the industry. Yeah. Let's fast forward to 2012. Sure. In 2012, you were inducted into the mountain bike hall of fame. And as I was doing research on that, there's a line that sticks out to me that to me, it's like gold. And it says, Gary got involved. He proposed the construction of a separate mountain bike only trail that got built. It received rave reviews and featured one unusual regulation. If you got caught hiking on it, you paid a $50 fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was, uh, uh, that was at 
you know, the, the early trail at Lebanon, you could do it a lap in like six minutes. Right. And we'd, you know, we'd go over there and we'd ride it. And there was a tree on the outside edge of, I remember a left-hand corner and over the process of a year or two, the tree moved into the middle of the trail. Okay. Tree didn't move, right? The, the people riding the trail just got faster and, the, and pretty soon they're going on the outside of the And I, I remember talking with the Lebanon or Dakota County who were running Lebanon and telling them, you know, this is getting to be kind of dangerous in here. Right. And if there are hype people who are hiking, uh, they're, they're going to get blasted. They're, they're, they're going to get blasted. And so that was, uh, that was their response. That didn't last very long, uh, unfortunately, but when Tim Blumenthal from EMBA came and saw that he had to comment on it because it was just so unique. It was just absolutely unique. And I, and I think, I'll bet nobody ever got, I mean, who's going to enforce that, right? I mean, it's they, not like they had rangers in the park or anything, you know. Uh, in those days, basically, it was wide open all the time, you know, very little, very little oversight. You know, now there's, you know, gates and bars and, you know, really good facilities. But in those days, in those early days, boy, there was just nothing there. And so I think that was the, the Dakota County's effort to really provide some kind of safe safety for this new thing or mountain biking. You know, it's early in mountain biking and, you know, sort of establishing some parameters for who can do what on what trails. That's that legacy of individual or separate trails, I think, too. Yeah, and that was, I mean, even today, you still see, I think, land managers, especially ones that aren't in tune of mountain biking, they would just ban mountain biking. Like, that's just the default reality yeah. of it. Yeah. And we're, all, we're always going to have to uh, fight for that, I think. It's, it's, um, that's why it's, you know, it's so important that at the club level, when you've got, you know, people who are sort of on vigilant about what's going on in their in the facilities around them and that you can stand up and at city council meetings and and thank them for providing mountain bike resources or, or mountain bike trails you know you, you you just have to that's just part of the deal you have to do that yeah and that that perfectly goes into the next topic that i want to go to which i called changing the narrative which is what advice would you have for states or communities, whether it be statewide or even at the local level, you know, when they face, face resistance, we've talked about resistance some, but you know, let's, let's go a little bit deeper on the whole, you know, being positive about it, using positive politics and, and just talking about what mountain biking really can bring to a community in terms of a quality of life. Yeah. Well, I know I've always felt it's really important to have sort of the right demographic, you know, when you're going to go into a, a public meeting about establishing a mountain bike trail or resistance to a mountain bike trail. It's important to have um, people who are older, who are residents, who have children, uh, who can uh, show up and and say, you know, I pay taxes. Uh, why can't we have this trail? It, it, we, we can figure out how to management. We can figure out how to maintain it. We've got people to do it. We're not really asking that much, and it's so important for people to show up at these meetings, do some work ahead of time, find out who the naysayers are, and try and talk to them. Uh, and and it, it's just part of the process. One of the issues with mountain bike clubs across the country is you get people who are, really want to work on the trails, 
but they don't understand that you're basically running a small nonprofit, even if it's not a official nonprofit. And so you've got to have a sort of a public facing aspect, people who can mingle with commissioners and do the, do sort of the stuff that, that is just sort of commonplace in communities, attending meetings and being reasonable instead of making outrageous demands or uh, getting hostile. I mean, it, it, it's, I, I've always been a firm believer that, you know, damage control is, is just, it, it just can ruin things so quickly. It's just really unfortunate. So getting people to understand you, you know, that for this organization, working on the trail is just one small part of it. We've got to have people who are involved in finding new board members, figuring out diverse funding platforms, setting up events and having kind of a public facing aspect so that you're seen as, as good guys, not bad guys. And I, I've always felt fortunate because, you know, bicycling, whether it's mountain biking or road biking, is such a positive thing. It's such a good thing. And I'm just so thankful all these years that I've been for something instead of against something. And and that I, I really learned that in the halls of Congress. I spent a lot of time in the halls of Congress and just so thankful that that I was always for something that everybody basically saw as positive, bicycling or mountain biking. You know, down at the community level when you're when you're facing resistance. A lot of it is just simple education and letting people know these trails are, you know, going to be tight. They're going to be single track. You know, people assume that, you know, you're going to be going 30 or 40 miles an hour. I always tell people, if you put a computer on a kid's bike and they go out and do the single track, you're going to come back. The average speed is going to be maybe 10, 11 miles an hour, right? It's not going to be 35 miles an hour. It's not going to, so much of this is just people understanding these are narrow trails that wind through the woods and, um, you know, uh, there's in many cases, at least in Minnesota, there's so few cases where, you know, going 40 miles an hour on a trail that it just doesn't, just doesn't happen. And it doesn't make for a very good experience either. So I think that, that understanding how important it is to have a public facing, uh, aspect to your organization, um, can really help you and you need to be seen as part of the community, part of, you know, not, not some wild anti slant on things and be reasonable in demands. That's, that's the other thing. You, you know, these land managers are, are working within certain parameters. They have other user groups that they have to work with. And so you have to pay attention and learn how do they, how do they need to function to provide for these other user groups? Yeah. And, and sticking on the community thing, you know, we've brought up high school a couple times now, you know, how has that changed the landscape in terms of the community side of thing, you know, outside of racing, you know, I've, I've looked at it, like you just brought a whole bunch of more people that maybe they're not mountain bikers, but they're, you know, family members of, of kids now that are mountain bikers. How has that changed the landscape in, in your eyes? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's uh, an important point because I tell people, you know, we're, we're raising the advocates, right? You know, hopefully 20 years from now, you know, some of these kids that are involved in mountain biking at the high school level are going to be resource managers. They're going to be working in the DNR. They're going to be working in county commissioners or, or whatever. And since they had such a positive experience with mountain biking, that sort of bodes well for what's going to happen in the future. But it, it's, it's always going to be an issue of, getting people to understand 
access to a trail is not a given. It's something that has to be worked out or, or taken care of. And I'm, I'm just so thankful. And when I think back before NICA was launched, we've just broadened the scale of mountain biking in terms of so many more people who get involved in it, the diversity and the equity things. It's, it's just so great to see what these high school leagues have, have brought to the mix. I get when, uh, right after we launched our high school league, I would get calls from many of my old mountain bike cronies that would complain because there's all these damn kids clogging up the trails. And it's like, isn't it great? You know, you, you may not be able to ride where you've always ridden when you want to ride it at the speeds you want to ride it. But on the whole, it's a good thing when you've got a team that shows up and it's, you know, it's 30% girls or women coaches and it's 50 or 60 kids or, you know, we have, we have teams in Minnesota that are 120 kids and all the parents. And it's just, it's just an amazing thing to uh, have been a part of uh, and to see uh, it's going to continue. So. Yeah. I, I remember back in, it was, it would have been fall of 2019. I went up to my local trail system here in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and it looked like an event was happening, yeah. but it wasn't an event. What it was, was Winona and Rochester had a bye week and they wanted yeah. to go mountain biking somewhere. So the Winona mountain bike program in the yeah. Rochester mountain bike program, all carpooled over to La Crosse. Yep. And I had, I literally got multiple text messages on my phone that day saying, what event is happening at Upper Hickson today? There's like the parking lot's yeah. packed and there's kids everywhere. And it was just them showing yeah. up to go ride somewhere else. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's, it's the, the whole sort of story, uh, both in terms of social and economic impacts. You know, we did a, I think back in 2018, we participated in this economic impact uh, study for what happens when you bring a high school league to a community. Right. And, and I remember bringing the high school league down to Austin, Minnesota, and talking with the, one of the city councilors down there who pointed out, he said, you know, this weekend, the population of Austin increased by 10% because you guys are here. <laughs> Your high school league is here with, with all these racers and parents and coaches and everything else. And then in 2018, the season championship at Mankato, we were actually able to do a survey, st statistically relevant, you know, here's how much you pay for food, how much you pay for fuel, here much, you know, lodging, all that kind of stuff. And it was amazing because our event, and, and at that time, I think we brought eight or 900 kids, you know, plus parents, plus coaches, all kind of stuff to uh, Mankato. But the economic impact measured for that weekend was $533,000, right? So think about that. That's, that's a pretty significant hit for a community when you bring that. And now, you know, our, our high school league is we're going to be close to 3000 kids racing in Minnesota, which means, you know, we, it's, it's been interesting because it's not so much about the trail. Now, when we look for venues, it's where can we park eight or 900 cars where, you know, where can we park all these RVs and these trailers and stuff? And then where can we find flat space to put up all the team tents? Because if you've got a team with 120 kids, there's going to be four or five pop-ups, you know, it's, it's just a huge, it has become such a large, uh, we sort of call it the circus, um, but it's just so cool to see what comes out of it. I've had uh, people uh, call me and say, uh, we didn't know anything about mountain biking 
before our kids got involved. And now it's our go-to activity. We all have bikes. We all ride. We, we travel to Bentonville and Fruta and that kind of stuff. I had a woman call me one day who said, your, your league has helped my marriage. She said, you know, I was a rider, but my husband wasn't. And then they launched a team and he decided to become a coach and he learned how to ride. And now we have this outside activity that we get to do even without the kids that we never had before. She said, we're in a better place because of this high school league. And it, you know, back in 2009 and 10, when Josh Cleve and I were trying to figure out, you never thought about that. I mean, it was all about problem solving. How are we going to get the rules figured out? How are we going to get the, you know, all the logistical stuff and who's going to move the, or clean the porta potties and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. You never think about the, the wonderful things that happen as a byproduct, you know, um, it's, it's just been amazing to be a part of. Yeah. Before we wrap this up, there's always a question I ask guests, which is what do you look for in a mountain bike community, whether it's a community in Minnesota or say you were, you know, you talked about early on, like your first time ever mountain biking, you traveled to do it. You went to Moab. Yeah. So what kind of stuff do you look for in a mountain bike community? Uh, well, I, I, um, I'm, uh, again, this is my logical prisoner of logic perspective, but you know, I want, I want a, a well thought out trail network. I want, you know, signage. It makes sense. I want, um, access to sort of the infrastructure around it. You know, um, I, I, it's amazing to me that you can go to places to ride mountain bikes and there's no porta potty. There's no, I mean, it, it's just, know why can't we have these things and, and i understand the vandalism and that kind of stuff but i mean they they figure out how to do that for golf and you know other outside activities right and then i think on the on the community perspective i you know i look for you know who's the club here who's who are the people that are actually taking care of the trail right and are they supported enough are, are they getting what they want you know for for me it's not so much I mean, we ride a ton. We, I, we ride all the time. And so, you know, I, I like to, I love to ride. Obviously it's a, it's an outlet for me. That's pretty important, but I can't help looking at the sort of the infrastructure side of when we go mountain biking somewhere and appreciating when things are done right. When, when the maps are done right, when the signage is done right, it makes sense. The trail layout makes sense. And inevitably, I I'll, I end up writing a check because I'll I'll be impressed and I'll make a donation because I I just think you know people should be doing that uh, when they can when they can when they can't afford it. So I, you know I'm I tell people I'm earthbound these days. You know I'm not somebody going to be leaping through the air or anything. I'm 69 years old. You know I've been I've been old for a long time, but I just enjoy really enjoy riding and having access to all these just great new places to ride all around the state. It's, uh, it's just so cool to see that, that all this has, uh, that this has evolved. So I should, I should also mention, obviously the, the, you know, it's funny cause up at Redhead where I'm doing a lot of work, you know, I, I, I've laid out these eight things that have to happen for this to become a destination. One of them is you, you gotta have, there's no brew pub there. There's no distillery there. There's no place to get a breakfast burrito in the morning. You know, it's like, these are some pretty fundamental things <laughs> that we need. You know, Cayuna is such a great example of, of what all that stuff that bubbled up, right? That, that there. So being able to feel comfortable with other mountain bikers just hanging around town, 
and that's another part of the of the community um, that 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 we're we're welcomed. We're not tolerated, or yeah, that that we're welcomed. So I, that's as I tell the folks up at Redhead all the time is you got to you got to realize when people go to Cuyuna or Tioga or there, there are accommodations for them, right? That's what their ex- expectation is going to be. So if they don't get it, they may not come back, and so you're going to miss out on the social and economic impacts that mountain biking can bring. It's important to accommodate mountain bikers. Yeah, you just spurred my brain on a couple of things. One is almost everyone I ask this question to always comes up with a brew pub or, or yeah. some kind of something to that level. So I'm glad you, you hit on that. <laughs> yeah. I My personal bar- barometer or metric for a real mountain bike community is having a wood-fired pizza place. Oh, that's, yeah. That's my go. own personal thing that I look for is wood-fired pizza. Yeah. But then the other thing is that is that I remember the first time I went to Cuyuna in 2012, there's, I saw a billboard on the way there that had mountain bikers on it. And I was like, holy cow, like this is real. Like that to me was an aha moment of like, yeah, these people are doing yeah. it right. Yeah. Well, it, it, uh, <laughs> when we started with Cuyuna, uh, Crosby and Ironton, um, they wanted to be the antiques capital of Minnesota. Right. And so it was, it took a long time to, for people to understand this thing about mountain biking and that the riders were going to continue to come and and slowly things started started to turn around. I, I always tell people, you know, the, the in my experience, in many cases, people are are maybe against mountain biking until they can figure out how to make money at it. And then then it changes a little bit for them. And then other people come into the community who who are looking for opportunities, right? And um and see empty storefronts as opportunities and are able to act on that. So that's another you know, part of, you got to have that for the mountain bike community, right? People who see opportunity and then, and then uh, follow through with it. Well, before we wrap this thing up, do you have any closing comments or words of wisdom for our listeners? <laughs> if you don't, if you don't, if you're not part of a mountain bike club, please join and offer to help out. Um, whether it's working on the trail or working in the background to help manage the books or raise money or find board members. That's all really, really important stuff. Uh, just as important, uh, if the organization can't sustain itself, maybe there's not going to be trails in the future. So that's, that's a really critical point. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great thing to close on. Gary, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to sit down and be an guest on the trail effect podcast it's it's been a pleasure and i'm sure we'll cross paths again there's a lot of, i've got a lot of minnesota content coming up this summer and i can't help but think if it wasn't for you and the people that you had supporting you that you know we wouldn't be doing what we're doing in in minnesota well thank you it's uh I, again i just feel blessed to have been able to work on this and to work with great people to make stuff happen so thanks for the uh, invitation to come on Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed on the show can be found in the show notes. Our next episode will feature another super advocate and mountain bike hall of fame inductee, Ashley Kornblatt. If you like what you have heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing the shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Also, please don't forget to leave a rating and review wherever you consume your podcast audio content as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. This podcast has been made possible by Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, Giants Ridge Bike Park, and Ride the Range, 
and has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.